Hello, I'm Dr. Rosha Babaker, Business Development Manager at Cedar Health Research. I love Femtech because its companies prioritize women, diversity, and empowerment on the platform of clinical trials. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus Podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto. In today's interview, I interview Dr. Rasha Babaker from Cedar Health Research. Dr. Babaker is the first-generation American with Afro-Arabian origins in Egypt and Sudan. She leads business development at Cedar Health Research, which is a clinical trial site network in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. They use machine learning to match candidates to clinical trials from their partner community practices. They then perform the trials themselves, and they have a focus on recruiting diverse populations, leading to success in enrolling underrepresented groups in the trials, just like women. In this interview, we discuss what and who are involved in clinical trials, why were females removed from clinical trials in 1977 and then re-included in 1993, and what can be done to improve female participation in these trials. This is a great opportunity for FemFans to learn more about the clinical trial process and what it would take to involve more women equally as men in the clinical trial process. Learn more about Cedar Health Research at www.cedarhealthresearch.com. Enjoy the episode. Hello, Dr. Rasha. Welcome to the show. Hello, Brittany. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me over. Yes, definitely. You are an A-plus guest already. You were like here early, you're prepared, you're ready. I love it. This is going to be <laughs> such a great interview. Um, may I call you Russia? Of course. Please yeah. go ahead and do that. Yeah. Oh, just perfect. take away the formalities and let's just have great. a- Great. We're friends know. already. I love yeah. it. I love Thank it. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm very think... excited to be here today, to be honest yeah, with you. Yeah, we met I in Austin. that's why- Boston, <laughs> That's why right? I came on. Yeah, we went in Boston. Um, we've like hit it off right off the bat. And then remember when we had that uh, other virtual meeting afterwards, like in follow up to our conversation, it was supposed to be only like, what, 30 minutes or less? Yeah. It we like turned out talking. to be an hour or so, right? <laughs> Which was wonderful. Yeah. So yeah. thank you for having me here today. I appreciate yeah. that. Well, it's a really big year for, you know, clinical trials. This is the 30-year anniversary of females being included in clinical trials in the United States, and we're going to get into that today. Um, But based on your background, where you currently work, your expertise, I thought this is going to be such a great episode to talk about the like intricacies of clinical trials, because a lot of people don't really know how they run or what's required or who is involved. So really excited to jump into that today. But before we do, we always love to learn more about our guests. So would you please tell us a little bit about your background, you know, where you're from, what did you study and how did you end up here? Absolutely. Thank you. So as you know, my name is, uh, I'm Dr. Rosha Babaker. I'm a licensed physician um, by training, um, licensed to work overseas. I'm originally from Sudan. Um, However, I moved to the U.S. a few years back. I'm a first-generation American citizen of the United States, um, and I have forged a career in clinical trials, 
um, you know, with me being here, um, you know, I went back to school, got my got an, 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 uh, a degree in uh, an MBA degree and wanted to just combine my knowledge of medicine with how healthcare is administrated on, on the level of research as well as like uh, on the level of standard of care to give myself like a bigger picture of how you know, medicine is actually conducted um, in, in America and how clinical trials are conducted, you know, um, you know, uh, over the world in general. Uh, with that being said, I, uh, you know, like I said, I completed my training overseas and I'm here today to just talk to you um, in terms of what I've experienced over the years with me working in, uh, in, in clinical trials uh, in academia at UT Southwestern. I'm st stationed in Dallas, Texas, by the way. Um, and so I've worked many years uh, um, in academia, but then I jumped the boat after, a f you know, um, right before the pandemic hit and um, I went into the industry of of clinical trials on the industry side and I'm currently working with Cedar Health Research, which is um, a multi-site uh, and patient network that conducts clinical trials. Amazing. Um, well, you're the right lady to talk to then about you. this. What, so um, what uh, area of medicine were you practicing in? Before. So I practice uh, family medicine, yeah. um, knowing that I will be moving to the U.S. eventually. I wanted to make sure that I stick to, you know, a, the li a line of medicine that will give me a general, you know, outlook and uh, an experience of what needs to be done on, on multiple levels. And I just loved working with women um, and it was much easier to work in family medicine at the time, um, you know, from within a focus of women's health. And I uh, just love the interaction of, you know, just having patients from all walks of life, uh, you know, who spoke Arabic as the first language, which is my first language as well, and uh, be able to explain things, um, you know, to them in a way that makes it make sense to them, as opposed to just making it more difficult from the perspective of scientific knowledge. Mm, I love it. Well, I'd love to learn more about what Cedar Health Research does, but you've already said a few words that I was like, uh-oh, we need to define that multi-site CRO clinical research. So um, feel free to tell us what a Cedar Health Research is. But as you go through, if you could please kind of define what are some of these terms you're talking about. Sure, absolutely. So uh, let me talk a little bit about Cedar Health Research first as an yeah. organization, Perfect. and then I'm going to jump into uh, the definitions of like the different types of organizations within clinical trials. So Cedar Health itself, like I said, it's a multi-research site and patient network. A research site, um, will, I will explain later on um, in terms of what it does as an organization. However, just me, the word site means that this is where the research comes to life. This is where it's conducted. And this is where you will find the investigators, the physicians that meet with the research subjects or research volunteers uh, to get the research you know, uh, performed or conducted. Uh, and so that's considered a site. But and these are, are human patients, right? Like the, the test subjects, subjects are, we're already using yes. human at this point. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and when it, in the research world, we don't, we don't uh, label them as patients. They are subjects. Interesting. I actually did not know that. So yeah, I just, just learned a little caveat. Out of protection. Yeah. You know, just the identified, uh, you know, mm. patients are a big, 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 ethical, you know, stand that, uh, you know, the, the clinical trials world takes on. And so making sure that all of them are on, uh, you know, have equality and equity in how they are being addressed 
is of utmost importance. Got it. And so the word um, subject is used as a term. No, and so with Cedar Health um, as an organization itself is unique because it uses AI technology, which is artificial intelligence, uh, to reduce barrier of entry uh, to support the innovation of healthcare, and also uh, into uh, you know through clinical research and also further expand patient access into clinical trials, mm. um, and this is done um, from the perspective of um, us as a as an organization integrating, uh, partnering, first of all, partnering with physician practices, um, you know, around the Metroplex and integrating into their EMR system, you know, uh, which helps us then form a unified uh, platform or database of all of a hundred and one, one point million, actually one point million recruitable lives to where uh, we ha- they have potential access to clinical trials. Mm. Yeah, I've always and, wondered that, like how many people actually g- g- participate in a clinical trial every year? You know, like I feel like I've never been asked, like, do you want to be a part of a clinical trial? Like, but maybe that's yeah. just because I don't have a condition that is being studied right now or something, right? Well, I'll tell you, honestly, um, not a lot of people access, uh, you know, access clinical trials and participate recruiting for patients for clinical trials is one of the most challenging, you know, Mm -hmm. aspects of clinical trials. It's not easy to find the right patient, uh, you know, the right patient population in general, and also give the patient enough information to where they're making, um, you know, I like informed decisions of whether they want to actually become a research subject or not. So that this is an area that is still uh, being addressed heavily. However, with Cedar Health, we have broken that barrier with the AI technology that we've used. Mm. You know, having that AI uh, feature, it actually helps when it, with it being integrated into the EMR systems, which is the electronic medical records of patients in each and uh, every practice uh, that we are partnered up with. It helps actually look, go in there and search for patients that have exact criteria, um, you know, of a protocol that is written for a specific study and then potentially match that patient to a study and then tells us as a site, you know, through the platform that this patient can potentially qualify for this study and gives us the reasons as to why they qualify. If having that. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I think we're going to ask, I'm going to ask what you're going to say, because I was going to say, if we didn't have this software popping out like potential patients, right? How do clinical trials typically recruit their patients or subjects? Excuse me. Very Uh, good. Very good question. (laughs) Yes. So the thing in the past and still is happening right now in standalone uh, sites where like they're like a specific single practice Mm -hmm. uh, or physician who is running, you know, a trial at their location and their clinic, you know, um, they they have a hard time because they will go in, uh, you know, manually look for patients, um, look for diagnoses of that wow. specific patient, and then go through the criteria of labs that the patient have, and oh then actually, goodness. you know, just like record that patient as a potential, you know, subject where they will reach out to when they come into the clinic, or they'll call them and let them know that there's a trial that they want to be interested, they're interested in having them come over for discussion, you know, or maybe even having the doctor themselves just, um, you know, uh, 
uh, kind of uh, um, identifying certain patients mm-hmm. um, having. So it's it's a it's a very very long process, very inefficient and tedious to the point where it can hinder the the you know the length or the timeline needed for a protocol to be completed on site. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what, you know, what would you say the percentage of clinical trials uh, companies that are like using software like this? Like, is it super rare that people are still doing it manually or is that actually the more common way and that this technology is more new? So it's a very good question. It's actually more common that people are using the uh, the old-fashioned way yeah. of conducting clinical trials. Mm-hmm. We consider ourselves as the disruptors of um, of how clinical trials are conducted uh, on a site level. Having like different site independent sites uh, across the metroplex. Um, you know, integrated with um, EMRs of practice partnerships, um, with where locations of these partnerships and you know practices are in different socioeconomic and geographical geographical areas within Dallas, Texas, gives us um, you know access uh, to patients from different walks of life, um, different ethnicities, different you know, uh, language is spoken and, and cultural backgrounds. And with that unique set, we actually address diversity mm-hmm. from that perspective, which is a huge, huge um, issue that's and it's a mandate that has been, you know, I don't know if you've heard about that mandate of diversity and inclusion um, that's been set out by uh, the FDA recently in the last few years, needing that um, each protocol requires that a diverse population of patients, you know, from different ethnic backgrounds, age groups um, are to be included in the trial based on the how the protocol is designed and how the study is designed. Um, and with us being unique from the perspective of us being an organization that has a multilingual staff and um, marketing materials, as well as investigators, it opens up doors to potential, you know, research subjects um, into giving them the access to clinical trials. But not only that, in allowing them to understand what clinical trial means mm-hmm. and what them, what what having them be a subject mean to them and to the clinical trial, and the effect, the positive effect that they will ultimately have on the knowledge given in the long run. Mm-hmm. And potentially benefit them, right? Because they're like potentially receiving a treatment. So that's the, the second point I want to talk about. A lot of people think that being a patient coming on a clinical trial will actually potentially help the patient because they're receiving a medication. Uh, but that's not the goal of a clinical trial because it could be a placebo effect, right? A that's lot right. Of patients, you have just right? as much chance of getting the placebo as the test yeah. drug. And a lot of patients might just have that placebo effect um, of like, I'm being on a trial, I've used so many medications, but this trial helped me a lot. So I might be on, I probably am on the drug, but that could not be the case. Um, And so we always like to make sure that the patient understand that they're not going to get a drug that will help them at the time we are testing the drug. However, they will get additional care from their physicians, you know, um, on top of the standard of care visits that they're getting you know, um, uh, just walking into a clinic and, and all that. So that's the difference between a medical treatment and a clinical, you know, tr- uh, tr- uh, and a, cl- and a clinical trial visit, Got if it. that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. I'm learning so much. Thank you. <laughs> For somebody that. who talks a lot about <laughs> clinical trials and stuff, I'm like, oh, these are, this is actually really 
pertinent, basic information at the core that I did not know. Thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, so, yeah, with that being said, the focus being on, on the on the subject in our organization, not only from a diversity uh, standpoint, but also giving the patients access to our sites from the perspective of, um, you know, having transportation services available, you know, or vouchers for that, as well as easy access uh, for the population by the through the the location of the where the site is, you know, the easy to public transportation, um, you know, accessible through, uh, you know, car like driving in a car or um, you know, just like I said, using a voucher to come in if 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 it's not accessible to them mm. uh, easily, and so that makes a huge difference also to the patient when they are making an informed decision about mm-hmm. whether they want to be in a trial or not. There could be a lot, could be a lot of hindering factors into that. Um, and we want to make sure that we alleviate all barriers, um, you know, logistically and also linguistically to allow for the patient to, uh, you know, to uh, make a difference in the world and also feel like they're not only feel that they're contributing, you know, to society on many levels and also empowering them. You know, that's a huge deal in making sure that a patient is empowered um, by making decisions, you know about whether they want to be in a trial or not based on the information given to them. Yeah. Um, but for that to happen, like I said, we have to have access to the patient. And uh, as, as pioneers within a clinical trials world and industry, having technology-based uh, you know, recruitment uh, platforms uh, allows for us to actually be on the top you know, for enrolling sites in difficult studies and also work with many patients on on different therapeutic areas and many, many doctors as well. And so that that this is huge. I consider it to be a, a, a big deal. And I consider Cedar Health Research being, uh, you know, a, a high competitive when it comes to that. Very cool. Well, I have another question. So I heard yes. in clinical trials, we have clinical research sites we have yes. CROs, which is clinical research organizations, I think that stands for. Yes, you're yes. nodding. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> and then a sponsor. So what the heck are all these three things? Are they the same thing? Are they different things? And how do they work together? Okay, that's a good question, which was actually the second question we were going to talk about earlier, right? So, yeah, so let me explain. So a sponsor is different from a CRO, which is a clinical research organization, which is also different from a SMO, which is a site management organization. Oh, okay. And also from an IRB, which is an institutional review board. Okay. And all these work in a different way. So the sponsor is basically the entity that funds the clinical trial. Okay. Okay. Uh, Or the study. And what it does is that it maintains clinical, like certain records and also certain uh, reports to submit to the, uh, to the FDA and to the IRB, which is the institution review board. Right. And And the FDA is, of course, is not, uh, you know, food and drug administration. Yes. uh, Yes. We're good on that one. (laughs) (laughs) People know FDA more than what it actually stands for. Um, But uh, for the sponsor, if, you know, we have a lot of startups that are listening, is the Mm -hmm. startup, it has fundraised the sponsor sometimes if they're doing their own like trial for their device or something? So the sponsor could be a pharmaceutical company that is a startup company. You know, it's it's a company that is like focused on pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. meaning that they're uh, focused on drug development okay. at the basic level and moving up. Um, and so they work, uh, they're focused on 
building the the the, the medicine, if I may say, you know, mm-hmm. uh, from that perspective, from from it being a, a basic research level, you know, and then moving it, which means basic research means uh, uh, research on animals, mm-hmm. and then uh, moving it into human research, where it's in phase one, phase two, clinical trial, phase three, and phase four. Each phase requires certain regu- are, are bound by certain regulations and require a certain number of uh, research subjects to be in um, in them. Just just on a very broad level, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, level, and also uh, it's regulated by certain guidelines from the FDA as to how what does it mean to have a phase one study versus a phase four study. Mm-hmm. And a phase four is the phase that from where it's actually at the market level. You know, this, the research is actually uh, post-market or ready to go into the market, mm-hmm. you know, to and be marketed. This process you're talking about specifically for pharmaceutical drugs, is it the same for a medical device and diagnostics that need exactly. FDA approval too? Yes. Okay, absolutely. So a sponsor is just, like I said, funds the trial. So the trial could be for drug development or for device development. Got it. You know, regardless of what is it that they're developing. So that's the sponsor. Now, the CRO is, a, like I said, the clinical research organization um, acts kind of acts on behalf of the sponsor, mm-hmm. meaning that they are hired by the sponsor to go out there. Uh, they're qualified professionals or an organization of qualified professionals who are trained <clears throat> to monitor the investigational drug or study as a whole in accordance to, um, you know, to uh, applicable FDA regulations. Meaning that once the sponsor, what it does is that once the sponsor is ready to go out, it's to fund a specific protocol or a study. It hires that uh, CRO Mm-hmm. And they go out looking for sites, which is the site management organization. That's just very broadly said. Okay. Now, before all that happens, um, you know, there are certain rules and regulations that take place from the perspective, excuse me, of FDA mm-hmm. uh, regulating and approving for the, the study to move forward to where it's now being going to be investigated at site levels. And also having institutional review boards, which is a committee formed of many uh, of a minimum of five professionals of uh, from different walks of life and different backgrounds, um, and they're responsible for protecting the rights and welfare of the subject mm. of the research subject. So you can look at it from the perspective of an IRB making sure that the research is done um, at the highest ethical standards yeah. you know you need that outside party to kind of come in and Absolutely. say hey we don't have money involved our lives are not involved we're just professionals that are going to exactly. hear yeah exactly and so once the sponsors and the CRO is working together IRB involved then the next step would be going out looking for a site uh, which is which where Cedar Health Research comes in. Now, Got the it. site is where the research, the protocol, the scientific design or the scientific story actually mm-hmm. comes to life, mm-hmm. you know, meaning that this is where the physician will be at the site. This is where patients will come. And this is where the professional the clinical professionals at the site level, like the clinical operations team would run the study. It's where we come in from the perspective of this, this study doable. Is the study like challenging? What are the logistical barriers? What are the clinical barriers? What are the challenges? What are, you know, um, the uh, like long-term side effects or short-term side effects of, you know, sort of how we move forward with a specific uh, study. So there's a lot of things going on uh, from that standpoint. So each each uh, entity has its own, you know, uh, rules and regulations of how they run 
you know, a study at their at their organization. We have certain standard operating procedures of how we do research. So whether we agree or not with a, sp- a sponsor, um, this is where the, the lines are drawn, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Sounds like a lot of checks and balances, which is absolutely Absolutely. what you need when humans are involved. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, And so how much does a clinical trial actually cost and what kind of technology does you do you need to run a clinical trial? Like I I remember in undergrad, they said it costs a billion dollars to get a drug to the market. And now I'm hearing two billion dollars. But, you know, I know a lot of that is early stage cellular animal model research. So like just the clinical trial part, how expensive are these things? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it does take millions of dollars to conduct a clinical trial, um, but then the cost is variable depending on, you know, the the clinical trial design itself, uh, where is it conducted, the number of patients that are needed, the protocol, um, you know, this, this number of visits that are required. Um, that's from the site perspective, mm-hmm. basically, like, you know, to like run a trial at the site level. Um, and there's like the budget between the sponsor and the CRO or our, or this, uh, excuse me, and the SMO, which is the site management organization, requires a lot of negotiation and in-depth discussions of how the agreement, um, you know, of when the agreement gets reached, uh, is reached and gets uh, solidified, um, you know, to move forward. So, uh, like I said, it keeps getting more expensive to run a clinical trial. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Do you, <laughs> you know? know if there's any, and I don't know if this is true or not true, or we don't know, but like mm-hmm. are women's health studies more expensive than like dual gendered studies? I don't know if obstetrics and gynecology has any kind of hidden fees in it based on what, you know, it has to do with fetuses and babies. I, I wasn't sure if that has anything to do with the price. Well, generally speaking, um, women's health, I can't talk to this specifically because that's a completely different area and need to, uh, requires a com- like a different and separate, I'll say, podcast okay. <laughs> you yes. know, to discuss. However, I'll just tell you that generally women's health uh, or women require like, uh, you know, they're more expensive to, um, you know, to um, to take care of okay. um, because of like all of the issues that they're having, um, you know, medical issues that might they might experience. Uh, also having babies like women of, uh, you know, uh, childbearing potential, those who uh, are having issues, you know, before having before able to bear, bear children after bearing children uh, and so on and so forth. So in general, uh, women, um, you know, require more focus, you know, and more, you know, uh, financial cost. Just wanted to also say, talk about like, I don't want to take away from also the, uh, you know, the cost of addressing, um, you know, elderly, the elderly population and mm. the pediatric population. So, uh, in general, human like patients in general require a lot of um, you know cost when it comes to healthcare. Health care cost keeps rising, um, you know, because of the many diseases that are appearing, uh, you know, um, like on on a, on a yearly basis, um, and, and the many like the variability of. Uh, the people population in different walks from different walks of life, like with globalization and with people coming from different countries and uh, cohabitating together and, uh, you know, learning to um, adjust to new environments, new diseases come, you know, out and get come into play, which means that more research needs to be done and conducted to figure out what types of drugs or devices are required to help these people, you know, maintain a good lifestyle or a healthy lifestyle. So I don't want to take away from, you know, I I do 
think the women are important to be focused upon. However, also, um, you know, men, elderly women, uh, you know, children, uh, elderly women um, and children are also important to be you know, address. Absolutely. Well, yeah. actually that leads us into what I would love our, the last third of our episode to be about, which is women in clinical trials. Now that we have the basic understandings yeah. right, of what's yes. happening here, yes. um, women. So, you know, a lot of people say women weren't included in clinical trials till 1997 or 1977, excuse me, 1977. Yeah. Now that is actually not true. We were included previously, right? To yes. 1990, 90, 1977. For some reason, I'm really hooked on 1997. I don't know what happened that year, but uh, <laughs> so in this in 77, women were then excl- then pulled out of clinical trials, and then we were put back in in 1993. Agreed. So uh, we were in there before 77. So what happened that there was a law in 1977 that decided that women of childbearing age shouldn't be included in clinical trials anymore? What happened? Well, uh, that came um, after, I don't know if you've heard about the thalidomide tragedy that happened back in, uh, in, in during the time, during the 1950s to early 1960s. We'd love um, to talk about that, actually, to take a few moments. What was thalidomide? What was it treating and what happened? So uh, thalidomide was actually initially, um, you know, uh, um, a drug used to, for as a sedative or a tranquilizer. Um, but then, uh, and it was uh, for over-the-counter use. However, over time, it just it became, um, you know, uh, approved for use um, by doctors uh, for use of um, managing morning sickness and nausea in pregnant women. Okay, it's a drug that was manufactured by a German company, and um, you know, at the time, and widely used within Europe and Canada at the time. So a lot of women during that period of time, like the 50s and early 60s, were just, they continued to take that drug, um, you know, around Europe and Canada without knowing the, the uh, you know, the uh, the harsh implications of, or the consequence of what could happen, um, at, at uh, you know, after delivering a baby. What it did actually, it caused uh, uh, teratogenic defects, meaning congenital def- birth defects of the baby. So a lot of ba- born uh, babies born at the time, around 10,000 or so, were born with congenital defects of like short limbs, um, you know, short arms and short legs. Um, and also uh, some, to some extent, some of them had even uh, neurological, you know, disabilities like brain damage to some extent. And we and didn't we- know this prior no, because it was not tested from that wow. perspective. Yeah. You know, it was it was not it was tested at the basic science level, mm-hmm. but it was never tested in humans to where to see whether it it would work. Um, you know, in uh, in making sure that pregnant women are safe to use that medication. Yeah. So it just was used, um, and the pharmaceutical companies continue to, you know use it at the time it was brought by many pharmaceutical companies after it was manufactured um, mm. in Germany and uh, that German company the pharmaceutical the main pharmaceutical company that manufactured the drug um like had uh, to, like was always taking interest from the other companies meaning that they were 
banking in. You know? Oh, I didn't know there was drama yeah. here too. There was, I didn't so know there refused. was like corruption. There was, there was huge corruption in that. And so it, the story started going out, you know, about babies being born, you know, yeah. with, uh, with malformations and deformities. And at the time, unfortunately, a lot of doctors um, in Europe would tell the mom to either like kill the child. They would actually the child you know the baby the infant um at the hospital or um tell them to just go have a second child and and the parents would then either they would hide that baby with the malformations my gosh and this is like not that long ago (laughs) like really not that long ago yeah it was really horrible until um a news agent found out about that issue and once it became live this is when the drug was pulled off the market but by then um parents of those children actually were the ones who started going out advocating for their children like you know because they didn't every single parent thought that they were the only ones who had a child with a deformity they had no idea um that this was an issue caused by a specific medication so Um, the consequence was that legislation was written that women so what how did we so, get to that was the conclusion so i'll tell you the- how it got to, with that happening you know the the scandal went on like you know was out so the fda issued a, a mandate a guideline uh that banned women of childbearing um you know age um of childbearing potential to yep. participate in clinical trials you know and that's basically um was like an ethical aim and focus to mm-hmm protect them at all costs. Yeah. And, you know, just they wanted to make sure that they're, they are a vulnerable population. So they wanted to make sure that they are protected and therefore they were banned from clinical trials Mm -hmm. at the time. However, over the years, what happened was that as the drugs were being administered um, and produced, uh, they realized that some drugs would work on certain ethnic groups and not on others, certain age groups and not on others. And so they had to go back and reissue a mandate that said, you know what, now we, we probably will have to include women of childbearing potential into clinical trials to make sure that the drugs that are being um, investigated can are actually safe mm-hmm. and, you know, and have the efficacy, efficacy needed to for, for it to do its work you know, when taken as a medication. But with that being said, what they've done is that they made sure that the, that new man- mandate that came out um, at 19, uh, 90, 1977 required that they have an, a, a specific and rigid guideline of how the protocol design is, uh, you know, uh, outlined to make sure that it protects the patient mm-hmm. of child, you know, bearing potential and also protects since it's going to be Administered administered on different age groups, meaning other vulnerable populations will be including included in clinical trials, pediatric patients as well, mm-hmm. which means that you know eventually mothers will have to take care of that child eventually. So, so that also had to be taken into account, and also elderly population. So the women were given that option, were take have have had that option taken away from them to basically protect them. Mm-hmm. at that time but eventually over time they were given the freedom and the right to uh, regain you know um participation in society uh, mm-hmm. through clinical trials yeah when i did my ted talk uh one of my slides i ended it with yeah. uh, we're protecting women from research rather than with research 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Or at least we were. So yeah, tell us we about were. today. Yeah. How is the participation of women in clinical trials? Like, is there enough? Is there any? Like, tell us about the current state. Generally, it's still it's, it still is underrepresented. I'll tell you, um, in, on 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 a general platform, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's uh, there are not as many clinical trials out there you know, that are designed for women population as there are for the general population, if I may say. However, we in in Cedar Health Research have access to, like I said, 1.8 million patients. 80% of those patients are actually women's women's health patients. So we have a very, very large group. Yeah, we're very women's health focused. Mm. Now, we are venturing out into other areas as well of research. However, being a woman's health focused um, clinical trial site uh, gives us, you know, the lead or, or, you know, the advantage of making clinical trials available, you know, to so many women out there and actually working with sponsors, whether, whether it be startups, you know, sponsors, um, you know, organizations or whether it be well known pharmaceutical companies in, um, you know, in bringing them patients for specific um, clinical trials that are high, hard to find patients for. Like we have patient, like very large patient count for very unique, you know, uh, therapeutic indications, if I may say, you know, we, we as women, we do come from all walks of life, correct? Like I come from a different background. You, you come from a different background. We are very diversified. However, the problems that you and I face on a day-to-day level um, are like, you know, can typically be almost the same, right? Mm-hmm. From a, from a medical standpoint, we, we go through the same, same problem. We might have the same problems. We understand how our hormones work and everything. And so with that being said, it's so easy to, um, you know, un- uh, access the population, let them know that we have what they need, you know, let the sponsors know that that we have what they need to run a clinical trial from that perspective. Mm -hmm. And so, but on a general platform, women are very underrepresented in clinical trials. Yeah. Is is there some reasoning behind that lack of female participation? Yes, there is, um, like on, on so many levels. Like I said, the first level is that there are not as many clinical trials designed out there, you know, protocols designed out there for clinical, uh, for, for women's health indications, mm-hmm. number one. Number two, um, we are now in America, right? We America is a melting pot of so many countries, so many backgrounds and ethnicities. What is not being uh, addressed is the cultural background and, and, and implication what that means on making decisions as a woman um you know uh, in, in clinical trial many ba- like many ethnic ethnic backgrounds like I'll tell you since I'm from the North African uh you know background also Arabian so I you know if I come from both worlds I'll tell you that where I come from what, uh, clinical re- uh, research is re- is considered as patients being guinea pigs for specific medical you know, studies. They're not, we're not, we're not understanding what it means to be in a clinical trial. Mm-hmm. We don't have that mentality mm-hmm. and therefore giving access to the population from that perspective um, and, and making sure that they have informed decision um, allows for, you know, better understanding what it means to be in a clinical trial. Yeah. Now, the other barrier is that like a lot of women don't ha- necessarily make the decisions themselves. 
um, you know, coming from different backgrounds, sometimes a woman has to refer to uh, like, you know, defer to a brother or a father or a husband mm-hmm. to make her decision, a decision on her behalf. Mm. And many times out of fear for the patient, out of fear for the female patient, not anything else, they will say no to that clinical yeah. trial. Yeah. Because they do not want to basically, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, have her like be considered as something that as a person that will be tampered with if she's already Mm. uh, having medical issues. Yeah. Now, I hear what you're saying in terms of like culturally, you know, uh, you know, what is the norms within that culture? But do you think that that also is uh, decreasing? So obviously, I think that decreases diversity in the men's, you know, uh, clinical trial data set as well. But do you think like men from Sudan are more likely to go in? And I know I'm picking in your country because you brought it up an example, right? But would the men from your culture be more likely to be in a clinical trial versus the women then potentially? Because otherwise, culturally, that doesn't describe why there's less women, you know? No. So like I said, culturally, women and men think of clinical research the same way. The same. Okay. Yeah. Okay. However, if we are, let's say, if we do explain it to them and they are understanding of what it means and how could it beneficial it could be to them, you know, to participate, mm-hmm. then comes that added layer of, okay, it's, if, if it's a woman who's yeah. being introduced to clinical trial with her family, you know, would she be able to actually participate or not? Understood. So, so if let's say if they are, if it's sparse, you know, if there's this, you know, if they're disparate in, in, in coming into clinical trial, the, the probability of a woman, you know, being in the clinical trial that comes from a background that is different, um, you know, that is different, different from the Western world would be even less. Mm -hmm. Got it. And how do we increase the number of women participating in clinical trials? What are some techniques that have been shown to be promising? Um, well, like I said, we, we just continue to speak to, uh, out. We continue to um, reach out to, to that population. We continue to inform and educate. Mm-hmm. Um, and we continue to try and just like, you know, break down the barriers and the challenges that a lot of women face. Now, that's one part of it. The other part is also focusing on, on, on the medical, the healthcare aspect of it. A lot of women, uh, let's just take a pick on, uh, maybe um, focus on one specific disease, endometriosis, for example. Mm-hmm. Endometriosis is a, is a tough disease um, that women have that may take up to 10 years for it to be diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, if it takes that long for 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 a disease to be diagnosed or a condition to be diagnosed, you know, for a specific female, um, you know, can you can you can you imagine how many more years it would require for this patient to actually come on board the clinical trial uh, to be, you know, to, yeah. to, to after like it, it will take so many years that's if the, the condition is diagnosed yeah. so the percentage does not only uh increasing that patient the challenge does not only come from ed, like lack of education but but also the challenges we face in in diagnosing a specific condition how interesting women. that the lack of female participation could be influenced by the lack of confirmed diagnoses of female diseases because we lack the diagnostic tools to even categorize the women as, you know, a a potential candidate for these trials. Absolutely. But see, with that being said, 
like I would like to also shed a light again on how technology can help that happen. So um, like, for example, Cedar Health, right? Um, here at Cedar, we, like I said, we use the AI technology mm-hmm. to go in and um, de- determine, identify patients with specific medic- uh, um, conditions, disease conditions, right? So let's say endometriosis. Some women do have the clinical features maybe of, of endometriosis, let's say, but they might not have the full-blown picture uh, to allow for full diagnosis mm-hmm. uh, of the disease, right? So if we are to, let's say, looking for to recruit patients with endometriosis, um, if a physician had just written in the notes, if there's not an, an IC code specifically in there, um, you know, that diagnosis that patient, mm-hmm. if, a, if, a, if a physician just used like uh, um, to write a note of uh, the clinical, you know, uh, features that this patient is or the symptoms that she's experiencing and the word endometriosis it, is there, that is immediately picked up by the IA uh, technology, by our platform, you yeah. know? Um, so it actually helps read structured, um, like you know, an unstructured data. Yeah. It collects both data for on both ends to allow for us to now identify that patient as a potential subject. Which is awesome yeah. because there's still billing codes and codes coming out every day or every Absolutely. year, I should say, for women's yeah. health. This- Last year, 2022, I heard there was a big dump of endometriosis billing codes that went out. And so all these like uterine health companies were like, finally. So I think that's what I'm kind of hearing you too, is that like literally the system isn't documenting women's health well enough. So we need things like AI that's going to read the footnotes to pull the right patients out. Absolutely. Yeah. Because if we are not using a system like a technology to identify those types of patients, and let's say we're just going in there uh, into an an electronic medical record to manually, you know, find like, you know, look for patients, Mm -hmm. then I'm sure I'm just going to be looking for ICD codes, right? I'll be typing in ICD code for endometriosis, waiting for it to pop out for me to say, okay, uh, this is a patient that I would like to speak to. Interesting. Right? And which which is very time consuming, um, you know, very inefficient in conducting a clinical trial. Yeah. And uh it, it actually takes away from the ch- from from time required to recruit the number of patients needed to actually make that research successful. Now I have another personal question. All of these sure. questions are my questions. Like every time <laughs> I do an interview, I, I'm wondering all of these things. But this sure. is something I've been personally curious about, which is like, how do we not let us the the little mind thing happen again. Right. So it's mm-hmm. like, essentially at some point, some woman needs to take a drug and get pregnant on it. And like, we need to then find out if it's bad or not for the fetus. Is yeah. there like, um, how do we, first of all, how do we figure that out? If we can, like, is there a system for that? Or is it just like, oops, a bad, you know, a thing happened and we need to like backtrack. And then second, like, how do you have women of reproductive age safely in a clinical trial if she has the potential to get pregnant? I asked this to somebody once and they said, well, that's because all and all women of childbearing age in clinical trials are on hormonal birth control in order to prevent that. Exactly. Is that true? Mm-hmm. <gasps> that is so true. For, for you to, uh, yeah, for you to uh, get on a clinical trial, um, you have to most of like, if, if not all of the, you know, of the clinical trials, women of childbearing age require, um, you know, to be on a, on a contraception. Do you think um, that that skews the data at all in terms of like women are being on, on hormonal birth control? Like, does that might actually change the way the drug works or doesn't? 
Well, if it's for a fertility study, then of course it will screw the data. Yeah. But if it's not for a fertility or infertility study, then it should not because they're then looking into, um, you know, um, recording data for other for other therapeutic indications. Mm -hmm. So it does not necessarily need to screw the data. It will not, if okay. I may say. Yeah. Okay. However, with you, with uh, wanting to answer your question about like women who I are yeah, who want to like have children? Who? How do we know if this drug is good for them? Yeah. Or not? So with those types, this is like a very challenging and kind of an area where like we're still working on because infertility studies are not or fertility studies they're not many. They're not as many as other trials that are out there, okay. um, and it's very difficult to get women to buy into, uh, you know, uh, getting on a clinical trial when they want to conceive a child. Right. It's, it's very difficult. And let's yeah. say they do conceive a child that ch that mom or you know, potential mother might think of like, what if my child then gets harmed? Mm -hmm. Even if this if this trial is actually made for infertility, what if, you know, something happens, especially if if a couple has been uh, actually working hard to get on, you know, to be to become parents. Mm -hmm. So that child might become a precious baby for them. And so making that decision can be very, very difficult. So there, we always have to address the effect of the the uh, of bearing the consequence of, of of a decision, you know, of coming on on a clinical trial as a research subject. If 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 you if you or I are of uh, you know a child childbearing potential mm -hmm. age, so it 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 can be very detrimental. Wow. And so with that being said, uh, there's a lot of caution from the sponsors and women alike, you know, based mm -hmm. on what had happened, yeah. you know, uh, with the thalidomide tragedy still, you know, um, even though there are so many precautions that are put in place, there's still hesitation of how do we mm -hmm. handle that piece, you know, yeah. um, in, in, in terms of clinical trials. So it kind of uh, it, it's it's a discussion to be had maybe in the future. Yeah. If uh, if if new with new technologies that come out, new ways of you know conducting clinical trials and new innovations. Yeah, mm -hmm. I heard somebody say that, um, and I'm going to ask you this question in a moment here. But mm -hmm. like, you know, what would be a great new solution for women's health? And someone said like a laboratory based assay to find out if a therapeutic drug enters breast milk. You know, if a woman is lactating on that drug or if it, you know, enters the placenta, you know, but do it on a bench top. And, yeah. and I was like, well, that sounds like something somebody can do. <laughs> That's listening. Do you and agree? I'll, do you think those are good oh, tests that someone needs absolutely. to Absolutely. And I'll tell you, I, I just did not mention it early on, but women, what Cedar Health Research was actually, our, uh, you know, originated from, a, from an Arbor Diagnostics Women's Health Lab. So this is how we actually can, you know, this is how Cedar Health was born. Well, mm -hmm. of course, a women's health focused, you know, research yes. firm was started by focusing on women's health. That's 100%. usually how it goes, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, Well, Russia, this has been such a great episode. I have two last questions I want to like fire through real fast, which is one, sure. we have a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs that listen. So what's an area yeah. in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? Um, women's health. Uh, okay. Well, I'll tell you that, um, maybe focusing on the, on the perspective of women's health and wellness, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, on, on preventing versus diagnosing mm -hmm. or diagnosis care, 
like preventing issues from happening beforehand rather than waiting for them to happen and then addressing them can be a game changer. Yeah. Um, you know, especially when, when you don't have health. billing codes, even if you want to be diagnosed. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> like we know, like we all know that women are, we are emotional and hormonal creatures, right? Mm-hmm. So our emotional and hormonal imbalances can, you know, ultimately lead to other serious conditions like mm-hmm. obesity or hypertension or mental and emotional health, mm-hmm. right? All that can originate from like just a very, uh, you know, basic problem that could have been addressed and solved um, early on in its stage, as opposed to waiting for it to snowball yeah. to where now it's becoming a, a really an, a health issue, you know, that could be a killer or detrimental to that woman's life. Yeah. So to all the, you know, health, um, you know, the, all the startup companies out there and, and women's health innovators, I would highly recommend the recommend, like the focus on preventative um, versus diagnostic care for it. women. Yeah. And our last question is, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? I mean, you are amazing. I hope for you to just continue to grow and and be big. And for that to happen, I would say investors, 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 Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So um, I would uh, definitely, that would be my, someone finding out, finding a a person or a company out there that believes in your dream and in your mission and willing to invest and support you to where, you know, you, you go where you need to be. Um, and to make that huge difference in the world would be amazing. Well, thank so. you, Dr. Rasha. Thank you so much for being on the show. You've been amazing. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Rasha Babaker. Learn more about Cedar Health Research at cedarhealthresearch.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Femtech Focus newsletter, join our virtual community, and follow us on social media. Share the show with a friend and continue to advocate for women's health innovation because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.